I'm Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Life Press, and if you are joining us for the first time, thanks for worshiping with us. We are setting aside this month to be our church's missions month, where every Sunday we're going to look at the Word of God to see God's heart for missions working out in the heart of the church. And this month and this year, we are looking at how the church can partner with organizations that through partnerships we can reach a wider people. And so it's my privilege and honor to introduce our guest speaker, who is a, a dear friend, a mentor, an older brother. One of those organizations that we had the privilege of partnering with is Westminster Seminary, California, and we had the privilege of having, having President Joel Kim speak for us. He's visiting us here today with his wonderful wife, Sharon, and so give a chance for them to uh, say hi to you, say hi to them back. But at this time, let us put our hands together as Joel takes the, the pulpit. I feel like Pastor Will emphasized older uh, in that introduction. I resent that a little bit, but I'm so grateful for our friendship as well as partnership here. I bring greetings from uh, the staff and faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. You have been so good to us, and we're grateful for your support and for your prayers as well. I also bring greetings from our family. Sharon is here with me, but also our children as well. New Life has a special place in our hearts, so thank you for embracing us always and remembering us in your prayers as well. This morning, we want to turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. We're coming right in the middle of a passage where Paul's describing his personal plans for the future. <clears throat> and as he lays out his plan, there's a particular part where he wants to discuss his heart, and that's found in verses 20 and 21. Does the church stand to read, Pastor Will? Would you stand with me in reverence before his name and hear now God's word from Romans chapter 15, verse 20 and 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the, preach, preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So far his reading of the word. Please be seated. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, would you grant us wisdom and knowledge beyond our years and experience, that by your Spirit you will convict our hearts as well as open our minds, that we may not only understand better the gospel proclaimed to us, but that our hearts will desire to share this wherever you have placed us even now. We thank you for this time. We thank you for new life and we pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. These days, in polite Christian company, ambition is not a word that you use lightly. It has a fairly bad reputation, if I could say it that way. A Puritan many centuries ago, Thomas Brooks writes, ambition is a gilded misery a secret poison. Ambition is a hidden plague, the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the original vice of the angels, and Adam and Eve. Ambition is the destroyer of virtue, the blinder of hearts. Ambition turns medicine into malady and remedy into disease. High seats are never but uneasy, and crowns are always stuffed with thorns. 
You may be wondering, why come to church this morning to hear such negative things? But ambition is certainly not looked upon very kindly. And if your impulse is to say, well, that's a Puritan, they're to be negative all the time. They're theological eeyores. And so perhaps we have changed somewhat in terms of the way we think about ambition. Well, more recently, Stephen Neal, who is the author of A History of Christian Mission, says, I am inclined to think that ambition, in an ordinary sense of the term, is nearly always sinful in ordinary man. I'm certain that in the Christian, it is always sinful, and that is, it is most inexcusable in the ordained minister. It escalates in terms of its conviction in saying that ambition, whatever form, is not only not good for people in general, certainly not allowable for Christians, and definitely for pastors. Uh, It should not be accepted at all. Here, the Bible seems to agree with the sentiments thus expressed. Philippians 1.17 says, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, we're told. Philippians 2.3 go on to say, Do not from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But the contrast is clear, not out of selfish ambition. James 3, to indicate that this is not just Paul, verse 14 and verse 16 say, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And then verse 16 picks up by saying, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jeremiah, without using the definite word there in verse chapter 45, verse 5 simply says this, and do not seek great things for yourself. Seek them not, is the conclusion. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. It seems pretty clear where the Bible is going. And what common thread we find here is that in these verses, we hear this phrase being repeated, selfish ambition, where the emphasis is on selfish. Ambition, friends, is often selfish. It pursues after recognition and honor for oneself. It craves attention for oneself. It yearns for fortune for oneself. It searches high and low for that nebulous success, however that is defined, for oneself or one's family. John Stott, in one of his commentaries, simply says, ambition for self may be quiet, quite modest, enough to eat, to drink, and to wear, as in the Sermon on the Mount, or they may be grandiose, a bigger house, a faster car, a higher salary, a wider reputation, more power. But whether modest or immodest, these are ambitions for myself, my comfort, my wealth, my status, my power. Ambition is often selfish, thus the condemnation from Scripture. Ambition is also often blind. We are all exposed to highly ambitious, self-promoting people. It's often associated with descriptions like unscrupulous, self-centered, proud, driven, insensitive, careless, domineering, leaving a trail of broken relationships everywhere. Friendships and churches and institutions be damned is oftentimes what we hear. It tramples over principles, convictions, and priorities in order to pursue the desired end of the ambitious individual. 
And what's amazing about this ambition and road to self-destruction is that the ambitions person does not recognize his or her blinding ambition. They don't see it. They think they're doing good. They're doing well for the church or others around them. But it's not only selfish, uh, what's that? Selfish, it's not only blinding, it's also ultimately godless. Some might say, this is for the kingdom, I do this. I will use whatever I gain for God's glory, we might say to ourselves. Or my, my favorite among many of, our, of the people we hear around us, I am maximizing the gifts and opportunities that God has given to me for his church and for his people. All those sentiments are good, but often at the core of one's desire for significance and security is self, not God. Here, part of the reason why selfish ambition is no good, according to Scripture, is because it's selfish, it's blinding, and ultimately godless. Many people call people like me, people who are heading into the third quarter of life. We were educated, we spent some time in work, we're now in the second half of our lives, which means that we're slowly declining to death, I think is another way to put it. But we're right at that point where we have about 10 or 15 years before our retirement. Retirement brings a different kind of ministry and work, and so that's fourth quarter until we die. But the third quarter is where we're at. We have some experience, we have some education, we have some knowledge of what to do. This third quarter, what are we going to do, is oftentimes the question that people ask. When I was younger, certainly graduating from seminary, I thought grandiose ideas were what we were supposed to seek. Billy Graham is the goal that everyone sought, and perhaps even now pastors are seeking. I want to be the next Tim Keller, is perhaps the dream or the prayer. At this point in my life, I must say, my ambition is much lower in this personal sense. I just want to end well. I don't want to bring dishonor to the name of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for we have seen many who have struggled in ministry in various stages and various ages. I certainly want, do not want to embarrass my wife and my kids. In terms of personal goals, it has come down some in saying, no longer do I want to reach something. I want to reach the end goal at some point without dishonoring the name of Christ and being able to finish in terms of what we do. Maybe this is how Christians are supposed to think. And life brings experiences where you're cut down in size, where no longer ambition is the driving force. And as we heard before, ambition being no good, this is exactly where we ought to be. Ambition-free and certainly no desires that we ought to be seeking lest we seek those things that are for ourselves. But this is where we run into trouble with our text this morning, because Paul was ambitious. We are setting the scene here as we come to realize that Paul has always wanted to come and visit the church in Rome. But Paul now reveals that as he comes to Rome, which he intends to do, and recorded for us in Acts chapter 20 and following, ultimately ending up in Rome, what he does not intend to do is to actually stay there, contrary to the wishes of the church in Rome. 
His ultimate goal is Spain, and he wants to make a stopover in Rome in order to get to the end destination he has in mind. Meanwhile, he's writing the letter to the Romans whom he has never met so that he can actually relate to them his convictions and his beliefs and his theology to get them ready to receive him so that while there, they might be able to provide missionary offering as well as support on his journey to Spain is the ultimate goal. So as Paul writes this letter in chapter 15, when he has mentioned in chapter one that he wants to visit and he's been wanting to visit them for some time, chapter 15 now lays out further what he intends to do. He summarizes his thoughts in the words that we read earlier when he says, I make it my ambition. This cannot be good. This cannot be good at all because we've heard just thus far that ambition is often selfish, it's blinding, it's ultimately godless is what I just said five minutes ago. How could it be that Paul says he has ambition? And then he finishes his thought when he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, he says, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I think you know this instinctively that ambition is not intrinsically wrong or immoral in terms of its intention. But like all good things, they can be distorted, they can be misguided, and they can be used for personal gain because of our own sinfulness. It's distorted is what we see here. And the particular Greek word behind this word translated ambition used by Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, combines two root words, love, and honor, it has a meaning very similar to aspire, aim, or goal setting in English. It's used in the context to describe people desiring to outdo one another in public service because special honor was given to individuals who rendered exceptional service to the city or to the state or to the institution. So in short, when used without all the baggage surrounding it, it's simply a desire to achieve a particular end for certain good. This is what Paul has in mind. This is why in a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, look at what Paul says when he says, so whether we are at home or we are away, we make it our aim. It's the same word. We make it our ambition we make it our goal. Those are some of the translations we have in English in that particular passage, to please God is what Paul says. We make it our goal and our ambition to please God. There is in some way for Christians a notion of godly ambition. Ambition not filled with self, ambition that's not blinding, ambition that's not Godless. But in fact, ambition that's godly and God-word in terms of its description and definition. And Paul was certainly one of those individuals. I'm not trying to say that we have to copy Paul exactly, and certainly not everyone ought to or should. But at the same time, we come to recognize that there are certain characteristics of Paul's godly ambition. And that's what we want to end our time with when we talk about the three characteristics of Paul's ambition. One is the gospel, the second is God, and the third is global. Did you like that? They're G's. I don't know if you noticed that. Just so that we can all remember together. Here, it's the gospel, second is God, and third is global. 
First is the gospel. His ambition is focused on the proclamation of the gospel. His ambition is all about sharing the gospel. His ambition is driven by the gospel in many ways. As verse 20 says, I make it my ambition to preach and proclaim the gospel. The whole letter to the Romans has been about the gospel from the beginning. You might have recognized in chapter 1, verse 1, he begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Now, when you give someone your business cards, now I realize that most people don't do that anymore, but if you are to describe yourself on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, there are certain words that people use to describe themselves, right? These aren't the words that we normally hear. A servant, an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Where Paul, in introducing himself to the people he doesn't know in the church in Rome, he introduces himself in terms of his vocation and defines that vocation in terms of the gospel. This is a shorthand to simply say, I am Paul and my life is about the gospel. And it's worth remembering that eight out of 11 occurrences of the word gospel in the book of Rome, it comes at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter. In between, Paul has carefully explained the universal sinfulness of men and women, and he explained the salvation that only God can give in his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he talks about the faith that sustains and grace that sanctifies, that makes us whole before the sight of God, all explaining the role of God in terms of working out our salvation. But what comes at the ends and the beginning, he envelops, envelops that with the word gospel. And the whole thing has been about introducing the gospel to the Romans. This is partly because Paul personally experienced the work of the gospel in his own life when he says in chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Because of the grace given me by God is what Paul says. He has been affected and transformed by the gospel. And as such, he's saturated with thoughts about the gospel. Can I explain to you how that might be found in chapter 15? Here, you see it in verse 12 in particular. I realize I'm cheating a little bit getting outside, but as as I was saying, we're parachuting right into the middle of his passages. And he says, and again, Isaiah says, verse 12 says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And you may be thinking, it doesn't have the word gospel in there, the good news. Well, let me explain what's going on here in Isaiah chapters 10, 11, and 12, where this verse is actually taken from. It's a quotation of Isaiah. Here, the prophet focuses on the restoration and salvation of Israel. And foretells of the day, the day of the Lord, we're told, when God's merciful preservation of the people of Israel and his people will be revealed to the world. And in chapter 10, he promises that people will be turned away from God's people and he will send, he will send a servant, a descendant from the house of David who will come and rescue his people. You know what's amazing about this? Paul takes that passage from the Old Testament 
and he turns it to our present time by saying simply, this person who will stand, according to that verse, let me tell you who that is. That person is no other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of God who has come to rescue God's people. And what's telling about the quotation of Paul, I know I'm getting into a lot of details here, but sometimes it's not only what he quotes, sometimes what he chooses not to quote is important. Here, he takes out the phrase from the Old Testament, in that day. That's amazing. In that day, he takes it out. Do you know why? That day is no longer future. It's this day. No longer does he need to say, in that day, God's revelation of salvation will be revealed. Here, all he has to do is to say, that one that Jesus, that God had promised, that's Jesus and he is here. And that day that was foretold, it is this day. This is what animates Paul. That the gospel grace that has transformed him is the gospel grace that is present now in Christ Jesus our Lord that must be shared. The grace is not just for him, is the point. And it must be declared, proclaimed. Don't get confused by Paul saying preaching. The simple word there is to proclaim the word and to share the word wherever you may be. So his ambition is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, his ambition is compelled by God. Here is the second G. It's God. It's godly in its God word in terms of his thought process. It's certainly not self-focused. It's not about popularity, friends. It would have been disappoint, uh, it would have disappointed the Roman church to know that he will not be staying with them, simply visiting them and leaving. It would have been more popular for him to choose to stay and not go to Spain. It's not about comfort getting to Spain. We are unsure whether he ever made it or not. And in fact, the historical records go back and forth in terms of different writers saying that he made it or he didn't make it. But what we do know is getting there would have been very rough. They're not taking a plane. Certainly, they're not taking trains. It's not cars that they're taking. They're simply walking to get to where the gospel must be proclaimed. It would have been his first choice, my guess is, if comfort was the ultimate goal, to stay where he is. No, he's going to Rome in order to go to Spain, and his mind is focused on where he needs to go, not about his personal comfort. Nor is it about financial gain. Since he is seeking their support, as we said earlier, he's seeking their support of not only financial means for him to go where he needs to go, but for others to join him in terms of this journey that he is ultimately on. It's not self-focused in terms of what he's trying to do. The purpose and motivation seems to be God, and in particular, that God is at work among us even now. God is not at rest, but he's at work. In fact, we see this in verses 8 and 9 when he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Why God's truthfulness? In order to confirm the promises that he gave and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The reason God is proving his truthfulness is that he promised. I hear this a lot from my kids. Daddy, you promised. Well, God, unlike me, never forgets his promise. And here, God simply promised that he will send 
the proclamation of his salvation to those individuals till the ends of the earth is what was promised. And he's keeping his promise. And he's at work sending forth Paul and many others to make that actually happen. God's purpose is Paul's purpose. God at work is the motivation for Paul being at work. And God working is the very confidence Paul relies upon. Because at the end of the day, it's not him. He's only participating in the work that God is already doing. Would you forgive me as I get excited about something else in terms of the Old Testament and look with me to Romans 21, the quotation? Do you know that that's a quotation? He says, Isaiah said this. And it's a quotation from Isaiah where he, having explained the hopes to preach the gospel among the unreached, he says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Why does he quote this passage? Have you wondered? What's the purpose of this quotation? Paul's meaning seems to be that this message of Isaiah is what drives his own personal mission. I think Pastor, uh, Elder James prayed earlier. What drives his personal mission is this verse, to declare Jesus among those who do not see and those who have not heard. Paul finds an Isaiah passage quoted his own ministry told and announced beforehand. It's not that he's starting his own ministry. It's not that he is starting his own strand of ministry. He is participating in the work of God already happening around him. His personal mission is God's mission. His personal motivation is God's motivation. His personal confidence comes in the fact that he participates he participates in the work that God is already doing in Christ Jesus. He finds his compelling reason to do what he does because God is at work making Jesus known. To return us to 2 Corinthians 5, 9 again, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Mom and dads that are here and my young friends that are here as well, Whenever I read that verse from Paul, it pricks me a little bit. Uh, as I reach my age and as I, we get ready to launch our oldest to college, uh, we are reflective of our own faults and shortcomings, as well as the joys and blessings that many, uh, both my wife and I have shared. There are a couple things that we wish we had done better. Uh, one of them is that I wish we had taught our kids Korean more. In fact, we didn't know how much they want to speak Korean and love Korea and wants to visit Korea. It's only a recent discovery of the last six months. We're planning for a trip as a family. Where do they want to go? They want to go back to Korea, they said. I mean, we've been there a few times as a family. I didn't even think of that as a priority. It's for them. It is. It's kind of intriguing. And there's a, a certain sense of tinge of regret for me that we didn't teach them more about my own background since I came here when I was 10. But the second one that we have thoughts about is just how uh, uh, devoted we have been in both teaching and modeling Christ in our home. Being a pastor doesn't mean that you're natural in terms of your ability to lead your family or your kids. Certainly, I would be the first one to confess to you, I wish I were different. Thank God that the Lord is at work and not just me. But it's important for you to remember here what Paul says is my aim 
is not just about when we go on a short-term mission trip. My aim is not just when I become a missionary full-time. My aim is not just when I'm at church. Here throughout our lives, what we are characterized by is this God-word ambition to live and share the gospel. As he simply says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord with who we are and what we proclaimed. Here, Paul's ambition is characterized by not only it being gospel-centered, but it's also godly-directed. But there is the third G we said. Paul's ambition here in Romans 15 can also be described as global. His scope is much bigger than you and I particularly imagine. Surrounding our texts are quotation from the Old Testament, one from, and get this, one from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Pentateuch, we call them, another from the prophets, that is, uh, uh, writers like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, and others, and two from the Psalms. If you were to divide the Old Testament into three genre categories, that's it, right? You have the Pentateuch, you have the writings, the, uh, that is, Psalms, and then you have the prophets of old. Paul intentionally quotes from all the sections. You have to understand the intention here, right? In Romans chapter 15, verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18:49. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. If you go back to Psalm 18, it says, among the nations and sing to your name. Romans 15:10 is a quotation from the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 32:43. Rejoice, O Gentiles. The original says, rejoice, O nations, with his people. Romans 15, 11 quotes from Psalm 117, 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all the nations, and let all the peoples extol him. Romans 15, 12 is a quotation from Isaiah 11. Paul loves Isaiah. If you want to understand Paul, read Genesis, Psalms, and then Isaiah. Those are the three books Paul quotes most from throughout his writings. And he says here, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, original, the nations, in him, the Gentiles, the nations, hope. I wonder if you can hear the theme that ties all the verses together. Do you hear the words, right? All of these verses look forward to the day of salvation, the promised rescue of God's people. Moreover, Though taken from the Hebrew scriptures, all of these scriptures anticipate his salvation, not only for the Jews, the people of God from the Old Testament, but for all the Gentiles, all the nations. Paul's view is much more grand than yours and mine. The hoped-for day of universal rejoicing has begun with the revelation of the righteousness of God that has come in Christ Jesus. Not just Israel, not just Koreans, not just Americans, but all the nations will taste the salvation of God and will rejoice and exalt his name, Paul says. And for Paul, there is an expectation of growth and expansion of the church, both in quality and geographical reach. There is a global consciousness in Paul where he's thinking not only of the walls in which the people of God are gathered, but the wallless church that exists where the people of, our gather, people of God are gathered, not only transcending time, but transcending nations and regions. 
The proclamation of God is anticipated, and this proclamation will go forth, not only growing and maturing them, but expanding and reaching them. Where the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant for all the nations and encourages his readers and churches to not only think, but to be involved in the recognition that God's work in missions in Christ Jesus, God's rescue plan is not local, it's global in perspective. But this is not just an encouragement for others, but this is his general mode of thinking. This is what he says in 1524, I hope to see you in passing. Have you noticed that? He's always passing somewhere. He doesn't seem to stay in one place. This is not to encourage you always be on the move as it is. The world puts us on a move all the time. We go to school for six years and then four years, and then we go to college for four years, graduate school for four years, and then we're always on the move. This is not what I'm advocating here, but his mind is always moving toward where God is moving. Here, I see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey. Helped on my journey, thereby you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Being helped on this journey means not only just financial, that is somebody gives money to someone else, which is included in the meaning, but also that sometimes you send assistance along in order that the work may be carried out. This is Paul's ambition. It's about the proclamation of the gospel. It's motivated and purposefulness is in God and that it's perspective and scope, it's global. And I wonder, friends, as we think about and as you reflect upon some of you, your third quarter, some of you, your second quarter, some of you, your first quarter, what is your ambition? May I talk to some young people here uh, who are young people, meaning in between 15 to 25, maybe as you're thinking about your future. Everyone around you in your lives, they have said to you, you should be a teacher or a doctor or an engineer or a businessman and so on. No one ever says you should be a pastor or a missionary. It's almost an insult to the parents. So let me insult everyone here. If you're the best of the best, you should be in the front lines for the Lord. There's a shortage of workers, and I share that sincerely. And if you're young people thinking about, what, what is the Lord convicting me to do? We want the best of the best to come and be trained and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever the Lord places you. Your partner, Westminster Seminary of California, our model is for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Simply put, our ambition is to prepare men and women and place them in the front lines, wherever those front lines may be. It's like running into the fire for first responders. These are first responders we're seeking. People who know that this is hard. People who know that this is contrarian. We never intended to be. But it's not the most respected field to be. It's not the most lucrative place to go. It's not the easiest form of work that you'll do for the future. But it must be done. And here, our ambition should align with the ambition of our Lord and our Savior, where indeed his word is proclaimed throughout the world. And people filled with godly ambition to bring the gospel to Bakersfield and Bangladesh 
to Austin, as well as Argentina, wherever the Lord desires to place them. Because at the end of the day, it's his world, and we are simply his people, his servants. Friends, pray with us for more workers, more ambitious people who are godly directed, whose desire is to proclaim the gospel. Pray with us that indeed our desire will be that the ends of the world will be reached with a gospel proclamation. Pray for us that we may be faithful to that end. Higher ed is not a lucrative future, nor is it a flourishing this area. We recognize that there is much need, and we would love for you to partner with us as we think about these things. Pray with us as we have a couple upcoming trips where our students are going to Japan, first week of April, and a couple faculty members and I will be in Southeast Asia visiting with Paul Lee, the MTW missionary that you support, as well as Westminster, Westminster Theological College and Seminary in Phnom Penh, as well as Saigon Presbyterian Bible School in Ho Chi Minh City. This is what we do. We, we know we play the back lines, the reserve lines, but sending the very best to the front lines. Perhaps I can end with this. We have a team going out to Japan in a few short weeks here that all stem from 2018 visit I had in the fall where I was in Tokyo and Nagoya. I visited Damon Cha, one of the missionaries you support in Nagoya during that time as well. One morning, we were sitting together, the three of us who were hosting a gathering of American missionaries in Tokyo. One was Rui Wang, as his name suggests. He is a mainland Chinese man who came to Japan and, and got his PhD in civil engineering at the University of Nagoya, but decided he wanted to teach Jesus instead. Came to our seminary and went back to Tokyo to pastor an international church where the event was being hosted. Mark Bocanegra is an MTW missionary in Tokyo, Chiba region in particular. He is Filipino-American, got trained at Stanford up north, came down here uh, after he went to Japan, was consulting, met his wife and got married, a Japanese local, came back here with his family to study and went back as a missionary with long-term desire to serve the country, and myself, a Korean-American. If you know the history of World War II, if you can count the three countries most brutalized by the imperial ambitions of Japan, they were in no uncertain order, China, the Philippines, and Korea. But yet their generation next and the generation after are gathered, sitting feebly with weak hearts sometimes and with gifts that are limited, but praying for the gospel message of Jesus to reign on high in Tokyo and in Japan. If that's not the expansion of the gospel through the work of God, I'm not sure what is. So friends, may the Lord bless you. I love the word uh, uh, Elder James used. I'm not sure what your personal mission is, but would you prayerfully seek the Spirit's guidance that, that your ambition may align with the Lord's, that here, godly ambition dictates our hearts and our minds. And for parents... Would you convey to your parent, uh, children the need for our hearts to yearn after the gospel and the work of the Lord around the world? And as Church New Life, as your name suggests, here seeing new life come to the Lord Jesus Christ is your aim and your goal. May the Lord bless you in small and large ways, not only locally but globally, be engaged in such a way that Jesus' name is lifted on high through you, and your work that you do so faithfully here. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we?
Thank you, O Lord, for Jesus Christ, who lived and died and resurrected for our justification so that we might have life no longer standing before you as judged, but standing before you as your sons and daughters. We thank you, O Lord, for calling us into a community that we walk this journey not alone, but together with those brothers and sisters whom you have brought into our new family, no longer along bloodlines, but the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for giving us purpose, both as church and as individuals, O Lord, to serve you, not to serve ourselves, to serve you always with a proclamation of the gospel, not for self-promotion, to be able to ultimately bring glory onto your name, Lord, not onto mine, and for the world to see and hear the name of Christ Jesus on high. And so, Lord, work in us even now. Prepare us both as individuals and as church to serve you well. And we do all these things in dependence upon you, O Lord, for we cannot do it. Our sins get in the way, and certainly the evil one is always opposing us. Lord, go before us. Strengthen us. Lord, strengthen our, our backbones and make it one of steel so that all that we endeavor and desire to do may bring honor and glory to your name. To that end, bless New Life and the pastoral staff and the leaders that are here and every member who serve you in both private and public ways, that their hearts and their minds may be upon you and you alone. For we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.